0: Joining us today is the multi-talented Brad Meltzer. He is a novelist, a writer, a TV producer, comic book author. He is a historian. He is a guy who really has a beautiful command of both language and a beautiful command of our history. Brad's new book is the incredible, the Nazi conspiracy, the secret plan to kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. This is one of those lesser known moments in world history that would have changed the ballgame, I think, fundamentally. Brad is here to talk with us today about that, a little bit about history in general, and I look forward to this conversation very much. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January
1: 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying "Um, it's declassified. It's
0: not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Brad Meltzer, welcome to the Enemies List, and tell us about your new project.
1: Uh, of course, what a what a nice way to say tell us about the Nazis. Um, right. So yeah, this this is my new my the newest book uh, just out now, and it's called the Nazi Conspiracy: The Secret Plot to Kill Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and FDR at the Height of World War II. And it was a story that I found a true story really happened. That I found years ago. This is the height of 1943. And at the time, Joseph Stalin wanted the Allies to invade continental Europe because the Nazis Mm -hmm. were killing him. It was getting devastated. So we started sending weapons, but he was like, no, you got to invade. And FDR said, we got to bring the big three powers together the United Kingdom, the United States, and of course the Soviet Union because we got to get on the same page. We got to plan Normandy. We got to figure out troop movements. We got to figure out morale. And so this meeting was just vital, millions of lives truly at stake. And to paint the picture, FDR arrives in Tehran, Iran of all places. That's where the meeting's taking place because Stalin wanted it there. And the motorcade's going down the center of the city and everyone's all excited because the president of the United States is in Tehran and they're all waving and craning their neck. And the president inside is waving back. But what no one knows is that that's not the president in the motorcade. It's actually a Secret Service agent who's a decoy. The real Mm -hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is in a sedan that's a beat-up sedan on the opposite side of the city, and he's ducked down and hiding in the back of this sedan, racing through the streets because they're worried someone's going to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy, uh, but that's chapter one for you.
0: You know, you have written uh, a—you're a prolific author, and you've got this great grasp of history— um, what was it about this story and today that sort of was so compelling to you to write this to, to write this particular piece of a very little-known moment at, at, a, at a very important inflection point in our history?
1: Yeah, I and mean, listen, we can talk about the, the you know some of the Nazis you didn't hear about; and those are the titillating stories. But you just asked the key question, right? Which is, uh, it's very interesting for me to come on here and say, oh, you know, I, I have I found the secret plot to kill you know, FDR and Churchill and Stalin, and, and people have written about it before, and, you know, that's fine. What mattered to Josh mentioned and I, who's my co-writer on the book, is we always say to ourselves, what's the book really about? Not the plot, mm. part, but what's it real like, what does it have to say about today? Because history isn't worth studying just for, like, memorizing old dates and facts. History is only worth studying, and if it tells you and informs you about something today. So, for us, um, listen, I'm Jewish. Anti-Semitism... When we started this book two years ago, we thought it was at an all time high and couldn't go any higher in modern time. Uh, Think again. Uh, once again, <laughs> was, once again, we were wrong. Quickly, uh, within days. But you know, we found in the book, you know, when Kanye West opens his mouth, when when Charlottesville happened, which of course it happened as we started writing the book, we all wring our hands here and we say, oh, I can't believe that Nazis are in America, and I can't believe this is happening here. When we looked back at World War Two. We found the Nazi rally that took place in Madison Square Garden. Sure. This is in the The heart of New York City. German-American Bund. Exactly what it was. That's who held the 20,000 of them packed into Madison Square Mm -hmm. Garden in New York, all cheering with a giant banner of George Washington surrounded by swastikas. And the first speaker Mm -hmm. of the night says that if George Washington were alive today, he would be friends with Adolf Hitler. And, you know, today it's Kanye West using his celebrity to mouth off. But back then it was Henry Ford and it was Charles Lindbergh. These stories repeat. And to me, when you hear those stories, you know, the Holocaust doesn't start with death camps. It starts with slogans and propaganda and rallies and book bans. And it starts with, you know, native born white Germans pointing uh, hatefully and telling this hateful narrative about another group that those people are the cause of your problems, and if that story sounds familiar to you, Rick, right? It, it obviously should, and I've that's heard why this write the somewhere,
0: book. you know, it, it, it's the degree to which you know the, the repetition of historical patterns, especially regarding anti-Semitism, you know, just continues to to haunt this world. Uh, I, I think is one of the things that this book you know, should remind us of and and that the the present day you know who thought as you said who thought in America in 2022 23 there would be people who not ironically or ignorantly uh, but but with intentionality believe hitler had the right idea and that this was the sort of thing that that i mean it the shock effect of it is so is so powerful i think that it's hard it's hard for people of of our of our generation to grasp because I think, you know, you and I both grew up at a time when a lot of people that we knew, you know, grandparents and even some people's parents had fought in World War II. It was a it was this, this clarity for a long time. Um, but Nazism and anti-Semitism, it is there's something virulent about it that keeps bubbling up in the world. And 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 maybe it's social media, maybe it's just a, you know, a combination of other forces here in this country, but it, it does not seem, we, we can't, we can't seem to shake this ghost.
1: Yeah. And listen, um, authoritarianism has a recipe and the recipe is that you have this, you know, it tends to be an egomaniac who thinks he can solve all the problems or has this, this love of power, but then he has this, you know, you, you mix in a community that is economically suffering. And then you mix in the promise that those people are the reason for your problems. Those people. And that's a code. And it was a code in World War II, and it's a code today. And back then it was the Jewish people, and sometimes you see it the black community or it's the gay community or the immigrant community. But when you hear those words, those people, that's when you have to use your voice and speak up and say something. And one of the reasons we wrote this book, you know, Is not just to tell you some amazing Nazi stories and not even to tell you things about World War II you never knew and entertain you. But it's also to warn you because if you don't use your voice and you stand for that, it's going to repeat. You know, they say Mark Twain said, although he really didn't say it, but he's attributed to him. That history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. And right now, man, it is rhyming.
0: You know, it's rhyming and it's got a fat beat. So let's play out the counterfactual that's the sort of core of, of this question. Let's hypothesize for a moment that Hitler had successfully assassinated Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt in Tehran, or, or anywhere else for that matter. What do you think, I mean, I, I, I'm com- it's a compelling you know counterargument, and you can go down a lot of different rabbit holes with it pretty quickly, but what do you think the outcome would have been in, in the broadest sweep?
1: Yeah, and let's talk about how they were going to do it because it's just crazy. You know, one of the best stories in the book is um, about a Nazi. You know, we we all know FDR. We know Churchill. We know Stalin. And and we all know those big players. But we do this thing in America where we kind of tell the story of how we punched the Nazis in the jaw and we saved the day for democracy. And it's such a simplified Hollywood version. I am much more fascinated by the bit players who play just as vital roles in an odd way. And there's a Nazi named Otto Skorzeny who we find we can write the Mm -hmm. book. And Otto Mm Skorzeny... Is this, Great um, ca-
0: historical character.
1: <laughs> I mean, unbelievable story. He's a he's a special operations guy. Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler invites him to the Wolf's Lair, to his secret headquarters, lines up all of his top special operations guys because he wants to see who the best one is. They're shoulder to shoulder. And Adolf Hitler asks them all one question. His question is, What do you think of Italy? And they all start kissing the boss's rear end, and they start saying, Oh, we love Italy. There are, you know, we fight along with them, they're on our side. And Otto scores he blurts out in that moment. I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And, and he's gambling because he knows Adolf Hitler is from Austria. Sure. And a true Austrian has great resentment toward Italy because in World War I, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never gave it back. And in that moment, Adolf Hitler looks at Otto Skorzeny and like, you're my guy. And sends him on this secret mission uh, and that quickly gets him the, the nickname, the most dangerous man in Europe. It's the craziest moment mm. in the book. We, in fact, I asked the editor, Josh and I asked the editor to put a photograph in the book of this moment because we're like, people are going to read this and they're not going to think it's real. But if he succeeds or if the, some of the other Nazis that are bit players in here succeed, um, obviously, we, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, the whole war changed. But I don't think I grasped before writing this book the extent of decimation, even as a Jew. Even having relatives who had Holocaust numbers that at Thanksgiving we used to always look at, and we you know we were always told to go talk to them, right. I don't think I ever appreciated the sheer numbers. So just to do play the numbers for what was at stake: the United States buried about four hundred twenty-one thousand people in World War II; <laughs> the United right. Kingdom buried about four hundred fifty thousand; the Soviet mm-hmm. Union buried twenty-four million people.
0: Right.
1: That's a staggering yep. number. When when Leningrad hop happened. They, the Nazis circled the city. And rather than dealing with POWs, they said, we're just not going to let anyone in or out. And within days, they were just going to starve people to death. And soon, you know, people were eating dogs. Then they started eating rats. Then they started looking at each other and thinking the unthinkable and eating that. And they said it was the largest loss of human life in a modern city still in history. In a year, nearly a million people were dead just in the city alone. And so if you take out you know, today, Rick, you and I were, you know, we're on Twitter, we're, and everyone has their own opinion, and sure. and so whatever whatever anyone puts out, there we all argue and say, oh, that's not true, I disagree. But back then, perception was so much more reality, and mm-hmm. so when 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 Churchill and and FDR meet for the first time in Casablanca, that headline that these two are meeting together, they're going to demand for unconditional surrender. They're not going to, you know, let anyone, you know, you, you just the winner takes all and decides what happens. That became a huge push that the allies were winning the war. That perception was the reality. It didn't matter what was happening on the ground. So if you, all of that is a long-winded way to, because to, I think you need the context. If you take out FDR and Churchill and Stalin at the height of where it was uh, at that moment in time, it would have been such a, a win for the Nazis at that time when they really needed it. They were starting, the war was starting right. to turn against them. To
0: unravel. And that yep.
1: win would have been devastating.
0: You know, I think I think that part of part of the victory in World War II it was that by late forty three, early forty four, the American industrial machine had reached a point where it was flooding the zone, and was starting to the, the the technical and logistic advantage that we enjoyed was starting to really you know play a huge role, and and the the idea that Europe could stand against the 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 out, the alliance in the long haul with with Stalin pressuring from the east and the US coming in and the and the and the Brits pressuring from from the west but it still took an awful lot of diplomacy and handling and and chivying along that i think roosevelt was particularly important played a particularly important role in that and of course churchill managing you know his own very complex domestic uh, uh, situation. I think that this—I uh, mean, the, like again, it's it's the it's one of the great counterfactuals because all three of them had a particular role that made them extraordinarily central to their execution of the war. But I mean, I think in some ways I could argue that Stalin of uh, the the three there would be the least change in the Soviet or character. Oh, he's
1: fighting to the death no matter what. He doesn't care.
0: Yeah. But I do think
1: you're right. I think, I think what you hit upon the point is, you know, I always, i you know, we did a book on the plot to kill George Washington. We did one on the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln at the start of his presidency. Mm -hmm. And when I study presidents now and other people, uh, you know, I've said it before, but I think it bears repeating a great president is not the person who makes the great speech or who makes the great promises. The people who we think of as the greatest presidents are the people who, when a disaster strikes, has nothing to do with why they started, but a disaster hits and they're able to pivot and mm-hmm. deal with that disaster. It's why, of course, as COVID hit, it was such a, you know, we all know the obvious reasons and the obvious presidents who can't handle that disaster. But I will say it's vital to understand that FDR, the one belief he has, I feel like more than any other, is the, his own belief in his own charm. He's on a charm offensive. And absolutely. he's like, I can I can handle Stalin. Stalin likes me more, Churchill, I got him. And then he goes to Churchill and he's like, Well, Churchill likes me more, I got him. And he's literally lying to Churchill and trying to meet with Stalin without Churchill because he's mm-hmm. trying to balance, you know, the, the the three of them. And and the truth is, Rick, as you know, and, and you just said, FDR is absolutely right. And and I don't think I appreciate it until we really got any deep in it that. We tell the story of World War II as if our victory was a foregone conclusion, but it's not. It's really not, and it takes a lot of all. conniving and and charm and chutzpah and everything else that FDR brings to bring everybody together and be like. And Churchill at they're like, "Listen, man, it's time. It's time. Normandy is time. Let's go. It's the you know the cross channel attack has to take place. You can't drag your feet anymore. Um, and and obviously that's what of course you know starts really turning the tide and puts it all over the over, overboard."
0: As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response, and that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits, exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Joe Trippi, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Tara Setmeyer. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies to let the world know where you stand. So... Let's let's walk through this a little bit. How were they planning to execute this assassination attempt? What was their what was the German scheme of doing this? And then I want to talk about how they got caught.
1: Yeah, that's the craziest part. So obviously, when it doesn't happen, this is where we have imperfect information, right? We we know that this plot is foiled, um, but the rumor was there's two that that come out. Is one is um, there were water tunnels, basically the water in Tehran was so awful, you, you would get typhoid fever, it would kill you. So the British embassy and uh, the Soviet embassy, the equivalents of their embassy's legations, right, had these water tunnels These that, that would bring in fresh water. And the idea, the rumor was for years, although it can't be proven because of course it never eventually happened, was that they were somehow going to come through these water tunnels. In terms of timing, the plan they thought was that FDR's birthday... Uh, was at the end of of the conference, and they thought, mm-hmm. you know, they never knew when all three were going to be together, but they pretty much knew that on Winston Churchill's birthday they were going to get together for a party, and so they knew that that was the rumors that the three of them were going to get together. As to whether it was going to be an explosion or whether someone was going to come in or it was a bomb, they were, you know, we were using uh, we were using and they were using assassination as a real weapon in World War II. So when Admiral Yamamoto, who was the architect of Pearl Harbor, we have them in, a, in our sights and they go to FDR and they say, you want to kill him. You know, you want to assassinate this guy. The quote that FDR says is get Yamamoto. And of course there are plots, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of bombs for Hitler in the Alps and on trains. So that's the belief of, of what they think is going to happen. But of course it gets foiled. But let, let's talk, as you said, about how it gets foiled because it's, it's bananas. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, of all people who save the day, the British, the British um, actually capture six paratroopers who are paratrooping into Tehran early, long before the big three are even thinking of coming. And 24 hours right before FDR gets there, it's actually the Soviet intelligence office, the NKVD, the precursor to the KGB, come to Mike Riley, who's the White House head of Sec- of Secret Service, and they say to him, "Listen, we just captured. There were 38 paratroopers, Nazis, uh, paratroopers that just uh, parachuted in. Mm -hmm. Six of them are still at large. They're still out there. And it's Mike Riley in that moment who looks up, looks these Soviets in the eyes, listens to their evidence, sees their evidence, knows the MO, knows that the British captured another few paratroopers earlier in the year. And he's the one who makes the decision, I think this is real. Um, And and in that moment, he, of course, to bring us full circle, uh, puts FDR in that car, puts him in the back. And hides them. I don't want to ruin the ending, but one of the great things is in that moment, they say to FDR, Where do you want to stay? You know, they don't want you to stay alone now. You should stay in one of these embassies. They have better security. You want to stay with the British. You want to stay with the Soviets. And FDR, in his chutzpah moment, says, Put me with Stalin.
0: And what,
1: <laughs> what he doesn't know, and again, I won't ruin the ending for it because it's so crazy, but he doesn't even know, or he, we don't know if he knows, but uh, FDR's room is bugged by Stalin. And there's microphones in the walls, and in the furniture, and in the carpet, and this becomes this incredible moment where either you know they're going to kill him, or this is a plot by the Soviets to trick him. And either way, it's a crazy moment in history that that will never let you look at World War II the same way again.
0: You know, it's um, it, it the, all three of those men. Uh, all three of the leaders on the on the on the uh, primary leaders on the on the allied side there was a gambler element to all of them there was a there was a a confidence and a and a a willingness to take risks in all three of them that that i've always found it fascinating because i i you know to be a fly on the wall at at something like yalta when when they start realizing that you know there's going to be an end to this road. They're going to win at some point. It's not going to be easy, but things are going to things are going to come together. And, and imagining them playing against each other at the same time—they're all playing against Adolf Hitler. I think it's a fascinating uh, a fascinating exercise. Oh,
1: and not only so, that—you know—we all tell the story as if these three guys are fighting for the good of the world. Let's not forget that Stalin and the Soviets were on the other side of the war when the war starts.
0: Absolutely. They're with the
1: Nazis. It's only when the Nazis attack them that they're like, "You know what? Let's go on the Allied side. I think that side's going to be better for us." So so he, does, you know, FDR is playing this game of chess with an unknown piece with unknown powers. And and for him, mm-hmm. when he finally sees, and he sees Stalin for the first time. I love this moment in, in in the book. And he sees Stalin and Stalin's got this shock of gray hair, he's got yellow skin, he's got a deformed arm and he's right. about 5'4", the shortest of them all. It's like a monster's appearing, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and the first thing that FDR does is, you know, is he again needs to charm. And he notices a, a picture on the wall of Stalin who used to love his pipe. And he knows, of course, that uh, that Churchill loves to smoke his cigars. And, of course, FDR has his cigarette holder. And he, the first thing out of his mouth is, you know, man, we should get a, a picture of the three of us smoking. And, and Stalin laughs at the joke. And I just love that <laughs> he has no idea if Stalin's going to be like, how dare you? And I want to kill you or like, you're my man. Um, but it is one of those moments where each of them are, are trying to, you know, by the time you get to Yalta, they kind of obviously have been through it and they know what's going on. But sure. at this moment, none of them have ever met all three of them face to face together. And I love the fact that, as you said, each of them is trying to, they're gambling with, you know, we Millions, truly millions of lives at stake. That's why we tell the story of World War II. It's one of the few moments where you know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are. It's the time when the United States, you know, does the right thing, comes in, saves the day. When's the last time you could find some military battle where everyone agrees? And uh oh, no, and that's, no, never. You know, that that story is, is not just the American dream, but it's it's part of the American myth and ideology. It's who we are. We believe in that.
0: The idea of this bold strike against the allies. I mean, when you get right down to it, the, there was a streak of gambling as erratic as it could be with with Hitler and the Nazis as well. They often tried for the, the very name of the operation, long jump. I mean, the, they they tried these they tried these these sometimes ineffective, sometimes effective bank shots very frequently. And we came out of that, we came out of that war. In a very fortunate state. Uh, at the Listen, end of the long,
1: day. what's so what what's interesting to me, and I know you'll appreciate this because you you love the you know I, I know you know this World War Two in and out, but I know also just from knowing you, even on our online friendship here, you love also the kind of uh, motivations behind these things and why we Absolutely. tell stories, not just what story we tell, but why mm-hmm. we tell them. And and what was fascinating to me is when I looked at it. Um, when, when it originally happens, this plot happens, FDR comes back from Tehran. Because you got to ask yourself, why do we not know this story, right? You and I are talking about it now for this time. How does, how does no one know this story? The average person never heard this story in any of the history books. And when FDR comes back from the meeting, he holds a press conference at the White House. He says, the meeting went well. And by the way, the Nazis tried to kill me. It makes the front page of every newspaper. <laughs> it's a major, massive story. But then what happens? Normandy, and 150,000 right. men go in the first wave and a million more standing by, and mm-hmm. this becomes a footnote to history. But what I love is is as the 60s hit, and you know, it's obviously the Russian intelligence officers who saved the day, but as the 60s hit and World War II nostalgia starts to peak, the Cold War starts to peak, and guess what? We don't in America want to tell stories where the Russians are the good guys anymore.
0: Right, where the NKVD so the was the where oh, the, the guys NKVDs that turned over
1: the Soviet Union and saved the day. We we tell new stories. We we that's where the story switches and becomes about oh they were trying to bug FDR. They're the bad guys in this story. And I'm just generally fascinated, you know, history is not math. It is not it doesn't give you one answer. History is a bunch of perspectives and what perspective you take gives you the story that you're going to hear. And I love the fact that you can track through history. You know, even, even the name long jump is that wasn't even the real name of it. That, that came when things got sexy and they wanted to sell it better. Right. Um, It's amazing how much misinformation was put out there because we didn't want to say, man, the Russians did, did did a solid here. And it's, to me, that's fascinating how we tell stories about world war two.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the whole good war narrative on our part, it became this definitional element of American history. And and even more so, once we got into the 60s and the counterculture, we we had the good war to still look back on. We had this oh, sort that was of-
1: proof, That was proof we were good.
0: Yeah. That was that, the proof.
1: It's still, and by the way, it's still the proof, right? We, it's yeah. amazing to me that you'd think that at some point we could latch onto something else in our own history to prove that we're the good guys. And we're still going back. But the thing that we have to realize is World War II isn't that long ago. Barbara Walters and Anne Frank are born in the same year. One of them we, mm-hmm. we picture in black and white, and one of them, of course, just passed away and we see her in color on TV. But it's not yep. that
0: long ago. Like I said, I mean, I was born in nineteen, the end of '63, right on the cusp of the baby boomer to X generation. And World War II was a presence still in in the lives of every adult I knew growing up. It was something they had either experienced or their fathers had experienced, and and it is it's fascinating that ha, what a deep cultural mark it made on this country, and 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 I think it is I think you're right I think it is the you know the the good war aspect of it, and I think it's the you know that's the the, the proof that we can do it right writ large, and you know I I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about this too is. Yeah, so we play through that counterfactual, and if if all three of the of the Allied leaders had been killed, do you think it would have altered the whole outcome of the war?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not one of those people who feels like you know if it, you know, suddenly we're living with like Nazi banners in Times Square, you know, like
0: I, no, I, yeah, I right. I,
1: I just I, maybe that's just reveals kind of how I view things. I, I don't think that the whole world changes on one person. I just tend to believe in the power of the ordinary person, and 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 I like to think. I hope, you know, maybe this is more my hopes of what I think, but, you know, we're down a path in the United States at that point. It's not just FDR driving the car alone and everyone's like, oh, what are no, right. you doing? I mean, right. We have yeah. all these people from Cordell Hull to you know, everyone else saying this is what we have to do and they're all behind him. So I like to think that we come together. The thing that I worry about, and it's a little bit what we talked about before, is um, back then the this was, this was the key moment is, is the Nazis could feel that they were starting to lose and a victory like that, as you know, it's, you know, you don't have to watch the Rocky movies only to know it is like when you (laughs) get that swell of adrenaline, you know, not to compare world war two to Rocky two or three, but like you get that swell of adrenaline and anything can happen. So do I think it twists? Absolutely. Do I think it potentially like, you know, affects us in big ways and, and, you know, it can go other ways for sure. Um, but do I think that we suddenly lose the war because we lose these guys? I, 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 God, I hope not.
0: Yeah, I, I, I hope not either. And, and again, going back to my, my World War II nerdishness, um, you know, we were already pumping out, you know, a half a dozen B-17 bombers, you know, in the, in the day shift, um, at that point, every, every, every day. It's part
1: of the, we're not even pumping out just like the metal and the weapons. We pump out Superman and Captain America right? They come, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, you know, Mm -hmm. are two Jewish kids from Cleveland, Ohio. They're 17 years old when they come up with the idea of Superman. World War II is starting to encroach. America is scared and they create a character that's basically bathed in an American flag and it sells a million copies. And everyone's like, why? Why? Because we're scared as a culture, we want someone to come save us. It's it's no surprise that Captain America is born right after that by two more Jews who are like, Oh my gosh, we need, you know, someone in. and his first issue is him punching, physically punching Adolf punching Hitler in the face. Adolf Hitler, right? Right. <laughs> so so at that point, you know, America is ready to fight and wants to fight back and wants to be the hero that we we, we wish we were. Um, you know, what's fascinating to me is trying to figure out what the Nazis doing. I think what was this is what was kind of terrifying and chilling to me is you know, it's it's very hard. When we do the Washington and Lincoln books, we've got the National Archives, we've got the New York Historical Society records. Sure. But here, you know, we're we're relying on the records of the NKVD of of, of the Soviet intelligence, and right. we're relying on Nazi records, which of course have been destroyed. One of the things we found is the top Nazi intelligence reports were on what they call brown sheets, literally given the name because they were dark brown sheets of paper. They would print them on. They'd lock them in a special zipper and. When you read it, you had to destroy it. It was like the Mission Impossible briefcase, but for Nazis.
0: And, <laughs> okay.
1: you know, and, and, and at that point in time, uh, propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, uh, he kept really intense and, and diaries. And he was such a mm-hmm. moron that he wrote down what he would read in the brown sheets in his diaries. And, in, and through there, we, we to this day don't know the exact day that they figured out the big three were coming to Tehran and they were all going to meet together. But what we can tell is that you know we all know the Enigma machine and how we crack the Nazi right. codes, but they cracked ours, and they had they had access to the international cables between FDR and Winston Churchill. And when you read that stuff, and you know, and and they're ha- and they have this information, that to me is the chilling part. That's the part where I start, you know, your counterfactual starts getting really scary because you see. You know, we tell the story through our own lens, where we're the good guys. But when you start searching through their information and their versions of the story, it's a very different story than we're used to.
0: Fascinating. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I wish you all the very best. This is going to be a hell of a ride. I'm looking forward to reading it myself, and uh, we will uh, we will hopefully talk to you again very soon. No, great to be here. Thank you, brother. today's entry on the enemies list will piss off everyone. It's the fucking gas stove debate. All right. Here it is, folks. For the Democrats who were pushing this out because you you think that this study believes that, you know, tells you that gas stoves are bad in some way, okay. If you believe that, you believe that. But you should have fucking known. You should have absolutely known from the beginning that Republicans would do the stupidest maximum thing with this with this piece of information. It was perfectly wired for a culture war attack or counterattack on you. It was so, so obvious. Even I got into the stupidity of it because I love my gas stove. I have a big fucking aga with six burners on it and I love it and I hate the idea of giving it up. And you know what? No matter how good-hearted or good-natured or whatever your idea was on it, uh, on releasing the study and then talking about banning them, you should have known what was coming. You should have known what was coming. Now, flip side on this: fuck you, Republicans, because all of you know that no one's taking away the gas stoves. But they—it's it, an example of how unbelievably petty and trivial um, you will be to try to turn any single thing into the political apocalypse. Um, a pox on all your fucking houses on the gas stove issue. You're all on the enemy's list. Get your shit together. <laughs>